Well, we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, and uh, I've called the sermon the wisdom in the church, and I want to start out by just pointing out a verse from the last verse of last week's, right near the end of last week's sermon, was, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, uh, Paul was saying, when he said we have the mind of Christ, He's saying that uh, the mind of Christ is understanding, the understanding of, the, of God's ways because God's Spirit is within us. And literally, it means that we know how God thinks if we read His Word because that's His communicative instrument. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, and God does in wonderful ways speak to us by the Holy Spirit, but mostly through the Word of God. Now, also, we need to be reminded that the problem in the church of Corinth at this point in time, Paul had been there for 18 months, a year and a half, teaching them. He wasn't there anymore. Apollos had been there also, and he wasn't there anymore. They'd gone on, and uh, he had heard uh, about a problem they were having in the church, and it really disturbed him. And the problem was, is that among the Christians, uh, there, there, was, there was conflict. And that really upset him. It hadn't come yet to the point where it was going to destroy the church. So he's writing sometimes pretty severely, sometimes really sarcastically, because he had spent all this time teaching, and now they're disagreeing in a disagreeable way with one another. So Paul is now going to talk to the Corinthians in this chapter about their lack of allowing the Holy Spirit to control their lives. And this has manifested itself in their divisiveness, especially as it pertains to what teachers they agree with or don't agree with. Uh, with today's social media, we often look very divisive to the non-Christian world when we argue over preferring one Bible teacher rather than another. The world does not understand what we're talking about. But worse than that, even today, some Christians can become confused if I say, I don't like that teacher versus this other teacher because, and then I state some reason that is not a heresy, it's just a disagreement that I believe in this one and they believe in that one, and, and all of a sudden now we're not friends anymore. And that's what one friend calls a family argument and does nothing but divide us and is completely unnecessary. So let's investigate that as we go through this passage. Verse 1, brothers and sisters, that should give us a hint right away. He's part of the family. When you become a Christian, you're part of a family, and we're all brothers and sisters. We relate it to one another spiritually. We have the same father. So brothers and sisters... I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, who is God. In other words, Spirit-filled, or I like to say rather than the Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled people. He says, I can't address you as a people who are controlled by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants, babies in Christ. 
So Paul is saying you're, you are being controlled by the world's thinking more than the Lord's thinking, even though you have the mind of Christ. Now, last week we saw a contrast between those who have the Spirit, they're Christians, every Christian has the Holy Spirit residing within himself or herself, compared to those who do not have the Spirit. And of course, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. This week, we see a comparison between those who have the Spirit, Christians, and are controlled by Him, and those who have the Spirit and are not letting Him control them. There's a personal responsibility here. I used to object to people asking me if I was a Spirit-filled Christian. It used to be common. It hasn't happened in a long time. I'd react by saying, of course I'm a Christian, therefore, of course, I'm spirit-fulfilled. But I understand why someone would ask such a question. They're really asking if I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to control my life. Who's in charge, me or him? Paul was saying that he could not speak truth to most of the Christians in Corinth because they were not allowing the fruit of the Spirit to show itself in their lives, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Uh, fruit here is singular, and then the nine manifestations of the fruit are part of the singular, part of the Holy Spirit. This is the character of God, really. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then I love the, la the next line is the most important line. The next line says, there is no law against these things. So it's okay to love. There's no law against loving. There's no law against being joyful. There's no law of letting peace be in your life. There's no law that says you can't be patient. There's no law against being kind and good and faithful to be a gentle person and to have self-control. We are able to have self-control because the Spirit controls our lives. You know, I've heard people say, I'm just not disciplined. Well, that means you're not allowing the Spirit of God to control your life because you can be disciplined if you'll allow the Spirit of God to control your life. One does not have to be a Christian for years and years to develop this kind of spirit-controlled character. Paul was clearly frustrated to see that his friends in Corinth were paying more attention to the world's wisdom than the Spirit's guidance. We used to hear the term often. I don't hear it hardly ever anymore. Carnal Christian. A carnal Christian is a believer who is refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to control his life, to control her life. One can be a carnal Christian shortly after they are saved or 20 years after they're saved. These believers in Corinth had already been saved for five years, and they had the Apostle Paul teaching them pretty well every day for a year and a half long enough certainly to have been expected to be producing spiritual fruit. So Paul adds to the analogy here in verse 2, and he says he's thinking of a baby. He, that's what he's thinking. They're infants, he said, babies. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food. You weren't weaned yet, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready after all these years 
You could just almost feel his frustration. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like just mere human beings? He's talking about non-believers. What Paul is saying is that they are acting as if they were not spirit-filled Christians at all. He is telling the Christians in Corinth they needed to grow up and stop being babies by living the spirit-filled life, which they are completely capable of. In other words, Paul is enforcing the fact that he believes they are Christians. He never questions that, but clearly they were not acting like it. Because, verse 4, because when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? You're acting like worldly people. Apollos had been in Corinth after Paul, and the record does suggest that he was more, a more exciting preacher or communicator than Paul. So rather than being taught by the message of Paul and Apollos, they acted as if they belonged to one or the other. So they were divided according to personal preacher preference. Therefore, a good question would be, how should Paul and Apollos and the others be viewed? And the answer is one word, servants. Servants. That's what verse 5 says. So Paul says, what after all is Apollos? It's like he's saying, who's Apollos? And what is Paul? Like, who am I? Only servants. Through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each, that's Paul and Apollos, his task. By the way, it's true that when we become a Christian, we're given a task, a calling. We need to discover it as soon as possible, and the best way to discover it is to be around other Christians and be uh, serving wherever you can and getting to know one another, and other people will probably tell you what your calling is before you even realize it if you're a fairly new Christian. And so Paul was a, a, an apostle mostly to the Gentiles. That's what God called him to be, and He's sort of more like an evangelist type, but he taught a lot. But Apollos was a tremendous Bible teacher. That's the task he gave. And when Paul talks about coming to believe, he's thinking of them as Christians whose lives have been totally transformed. When you believe, your life is transformed. When Paul thought of someone becoming a Christian, he assumed a total life change, a turning from one life to live a different life. It's not like joining a club or something. When you become a Christian, you become a new creature in Christ. Paul describes a believer as one who has literally, has literally been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. Becoming a believer is a radical change that should be obvious to everyone around us. We are, he says, in another place, new creations in Christ. Or some Bible translation, we're new creatures in Christ. We're a new person when we were saved. So his message was not, well, his message was, Jesus is Lord. Not, Jesus is something we can tack on to our lives and go on living as if nothing has changed. So Paul describes himself and Apollos first in farming terms. That was their main culture. 
So in verse 6, he says, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. We're nothing. But only God who makes things grow. Paul is saying that neither he nor Apollos are really anything at all. So stop dividing over those who are simply exercising their gifts in obedience to God, to God who makes things grow. Alexander McLaren wrote, uh, so what was the use of fighting which of two nothings was the greater? I love that. It's a great line. Verse 8, the one who plants writes Paul, and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. So the one who plants and the one who waters has one purpose. Paul and Apollos had a particular calling, and they'll be rewarded for that according to their own labor. The word for labor can be translated toil, toil. The idea behind this word is that we are to work purposely. There was a book some time back called The Purpose Driven Life. Now, I liked it just for the title. And, you know, I was asked this morning, are you sure you want to put that, do you want to put that up or not? Sure, I put it up. I admire what Rick Warren has done. Oh, don't you know what the Baptist has said about him? And don't you know about this? Yeah, I know about all that. And I think it's a shame. And I don't agree with him on some of those things, but nothing, none of those things will keep him out of heaven. He believes in the gospel the same as I do. And so I don't, I don't have to have him believe exactly like I do on, on the family matters. And I don't agree with him, but I'd like to be his friend, but I loved his book. And the reason I, I liked his book is uh, the idea behind the whole things is that we're all to work, uh, we're all to live our lives with purpose. And he says in his book that, uh, that if you're part of a church, God has given you a purpose in that church and you need to fulfill that purpose. And I had a friend phone me when the book was first out and said, oh, you know, I've, I got a problem. All kinds of people are reading Rick Warren's purpose-driven life book, what should I do about it? He was a pastor in another state that I knew, and I said, I, f- I feel for you. I'm, everybody's reading it here, too. My wife loves it, and I'm really upset. He says, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. We have so many people now that want to do things in the church. We're just so, we've got to get it better organized. They're all reading this book, and they're all asking me what's their purpose, and, and uh, he hung up. But, uh, (laughs) you know, we have to learn that Jesus said they'll know us by our love for one another. Now, if somebody's a heretic and stuff, okay, that's that's totally different, totally different. But we must live our lives of purpose. We need goals so that we can have direction in life. And a growing Christian serves God intently using his or her gifts as tools to build with and not toys to play with or trophies to boast about. And when we exercise our God-given giftedness, we'll each receive a reward in eternity. Now look at verse 9. This is a great verse. For we, 
Paul says. He's talking about him and Apollos specifically. So we, me and Apollos, are co-workers in God's service. Now he says you, it's plural, he's talking to the church. You are God's field. You are God's building. So the church is pictured as God's field full of workers cooperating together or as God's building being built by carpenters and steel workers and window framers and roofers and on and on. God owns the farm. We just work in it. God owns the building. We just occupy it. The church is God's church. It's not that the church isn't the building. We're the church. We meet in the building. And Paul and Apollos and Pastor Carl are servants, not bosses or owners, but servants. Actually, the word servants in the modern translations is doulos, which is the word for slave, and Paul was proud to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And everyone else also serves by planting and obeying and building the church owned by God. That's why Paul uses the term urge in Romans 12 and other places. He says, I urge you, therefore. He doesn't say, I demand you of this. God told me to tell you this. You better do this. No, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, because of the mercies of God, to give yourself as a, as a sacrifice, a total living sacrifice because of all that God has done for you. He was always trying to get people to come together, to work together for the, the greater purpose of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. I like Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 19 and following in the New Living Translation. Here's how it reads. So now you Gentiles, part of Paul's problem, if you want to call it that, was to make sure, he, it's all through his writings, is to make sure that there was no divide between Gentiles and Jews. The Jews were reticent to have Gentiles as part of anything, and the Gentiles didn't like the Jews. But in Christ, there are no more Jews or Gentiles, male or female, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. And he says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. So do you see how, what that means to us? Ethnicity means nothing. We're all citizens of God's set-apart people. And you are members of God's family. So we all are members of the same family. We all have the same father. And together, we are his house. It's his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who first brought the message. And the cornerstone is Christ, who's the Messiah, Jesus himself, the cornerstone keeps the whole building from collapsing, and we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple. We together are a holy temple for the Lord, and through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. He's doing everything he can to keep people together. Forget ethnicity. Forget all that kind of things. Forget the unimportant uh, differences. We're to love one another. So now Paul tells us how to proceed with God's building project. Verse 10, he says, By the grace God has given me. The grace God has given me. I laid a foundation as a wise builder. 
like a master builder, a, a wise this word that he taught. We talked about sophism and stuff last week. He's, he's a wise builder, but he's wise spiritually speaking, and someone else is building on it. So by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on that foundation. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. When Paul mentions Jesus Christ, he's reminding them of the gospel, which is all about the cross, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the foundation of the church, not doctrine. Doctrine comes out of that and is important, but Christ crucified is the foundation. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. That's why Paul wrote, but each one should build with care. It's talking to all of us. The foundation is the building, the foundation of the church, the wisdom of the cross, not the rhetoric of the sophists with their worldly ideas. It is not the wisdom of the world that we worry about. It's not the words of our favorite preacher. The foundation is Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. So we must be careful how we build as, uh, as we're accountable for how we live our Christian lives in the short time that we have on earth. Now look at verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, that dates me a bit, doesn't it? Wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, that's the day of judgment, will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire. Fire's, he's not talking about burning a building down. He's talking about judgment. Fire is judgment, but he's using that metaphor on purpose. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, he'll receive a reward. He's talking to us. If it is burned up, then we will suffer loss. The builder will suffer loss. But, Paul adds, yet we'll be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, the idea of gold, silver, costly stones, and wood, hay, or straw, it just says things that will last and things that won't last things that will survive the judgment of God, things that won't survive the judgment of God. He uses fire because fire won't destroy gold, silver, or costly stones, but it will completely destroy wood, hay, or straw. So what, uh, what building materials are we going to use in our lives as we together build God's temple? Because together we're God's temple. Another way of putting it would be to say that we must build our spiritual temple with spiritual wisdom rather than worldly, sophist rhetoric. That comes out of last week's sermon. We don't build a church on business principles or motivational speeches. For the church, that's, that's wood, hay, and straw. Good advice preaching. And we need good advice, but we need what the Bible has to say more. We build the church on prayer, on service, on humility, and on sacrifice. That's gold, silver, costly stones. And then, when the day of judgment comes, our works will withstand the judgment. 
the fire, instead of burning up with a loss of reward. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. There's a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. And it'll only be a little while, and maybe just your lifetime. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ, is revealed to the whole world. Wow. You see, quality is the key word rather than quantity. I mean, this is an, an amazing thing. When I read this, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. I mean, I just am so... At one time, I was at a meeting where she was. Just one time, it was like being in the... In the like an angel being present. Ever since a teenager, she's been in a wheelchair. There's a 12 or 13-minute video that I've watched many times on YouTube of her and her husband. And, and uh, she's suffered, of course, total paralysis, but she um, has to be in a wheelchair. She can't take care of herself. Uh, she suffered cancer and several other diseases. And she is 100% of the time in terrible pain. And that little video has made me, has given me more hope and joy than anything I've ever seen. Just listen to her talk and knowing what she's accomplished. So here's a, an interesting question. Did you know that we are all to face a future judgment? I'm talking to Christians now. That we are accountable for even the words we speak. Not for salvation, that's by grace, but for rewards received from being faithful to what God has called us to do. We all receive gifts when we are saved, purposes, and are responsible for how we exercise our gifts. And God says, if you serve me during your short temporal time here on earth, You'll have rewards waiting for you in your eternal dwelling in heaven. So it makes a difference how we live during our time here on earth before we go or he comes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For we must all appear, all of us Christians, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, that should be exciting for us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship, koinonia, relationship with one another, remain in fellowship with Christ and one another, so that when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Um, <clears throat> After I prepared this, uh, a man that I've been praying for almost every day for the last few years, but for longer than that, 
A lot of you know, some have asked me some questions about him already today. Tim Keller died. I've been praying that he get to be 75 years old. That's what his goal was. If, if God, he, he had a cancer that normally takes you out in weeks. And he, he lasted long enough to write three wonderful books, more. He's written a lot of books. And uh, we'll talk about his death in a moment uh, from what his son wrote about him. But uh, he sure was looking forward to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anybody else, he's given me that certainty of hope of heaven. And uh, we should be looking so forward. He, was, he wanted to live so he could serve, but he was looking forward clearly to go home. So that's the way we're supposed to live. And, and Paul, uh, he now appeals to the Corinthians again by reminding them who they are. Paul is sad not mad at them. Steve Brown, I really like him. He's always saying, God's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. Somebody asked me just this week, are you mad at me? I said, I couldn't be mad at you. How could I be mad at you? That's not possible. You know, God's not mad at me, but sometimes he sheds tears. Sometimes he's very sad because of me. And he's a wonderful father. Paul, in verse 16, don't you know that? Don't you know that? Don't you know that? Ten times he uses this phrase. Ten times. What he's really saying is, you know this, don't you? It's a, he's frustrated. Don't you know, verse 16, that you yourselves are God's temple, it's all plural, we together, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple, are that temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, he, he doesn't have the plural. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and has been given to you by God? Don't you realize that? God gave you your body. You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. That's the cross. So you must honor God with your body. We're to take care of our bodies. We're to use our bodies and the abilities they give us uh, to build God's temple. And remember, look at what it says here. For God's temple is sacred. Uh, you, uh, near that temple, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. One pastor, 1978, was a sermon I listened to this week. And uh, he tells us he was speaking at a, an airline convention of Christian airline employees. And he says there were everybody, every airline type person was there, including pilots down to mechanics. And uh, one uh, young woman, he said, who was very beautiful, stood up to give a testimony. It was a Christian meeting. And she talked about how that she was working on the airplane and you know, serving the people. And she was going down the aisle and this man 
motion to her, and she uh, went down, and he held something in his hand, doesn't say what it is, that was uh, very sexual, and she walked away fast as she could, went to the back of the plane. She says, oh, God, what do I do? This is awful. And, she, and then after she prayed, she went back to the man. She said, excuse me, sir, I'd like to say something to you. He said, okay. She said, um, you showed me something, and I know what you were meant, but I'm a Christian. And it says in the Bible uh, that if anyone tries to destroy a Christian, that God will destroy that person. And she said, he totally changed. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it. <laughs> but you see, we are protected by God. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Now, this is more than a warning to false teachers. It's a warning to anyone who would introduce division in the church. It's an emotional statement and not a theological conclusion. Paul is saying, we're not playing games here. This is church, a matter of life and death for the world. The church is, we are to be an alternative to the world to the world. That's why uh, I had a lot of people comment on my Facebook page recently because I would never put a political thing up on the Facebook page. Why? I don't want to be identified as politically anything. I'm showing the, whoever wants to look at that page what life is really all about. And that's what we're supposed to be. We are to be the alternative to the world. So don't waste your time trying to change things that you can't change. God is in charge of all this. Yes, we vote and all that kind of stuff. But other than that, we need to see the church build up. The country needs the church. And they don't need the church as a bunch of critics. That doesn't mean we don't believe certain things and hold them strongly. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 18, Do not deceive yourselves. This is worded in the grammar as if to say, stop deceiving yourself or stop kidding yourself. So he says, don't kid yourself. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, this world, and some of you obviously do, he's saying, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He's quoting the scripture. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise, he's talking about the worldly wise, are futile. Psalm 94, 11, the Lord knows people's thoughts. He knows they are futile. Job chapter 5, 12 and 13, he frustrates the plans of the schemers so the work of their hands will not succeed. He traps the wise in their own cleverness so their cunning schemes are thwarted. It is so easy for us to be deceived by worldly success. We can kid ourselves and slip, in, slip into the ways of the world's thinking, thinking that we're doing right. The world is full of nice people who are unfortunately heading toward a terrible eternity without their sins forgiven. We must be willing to examine ourselves and be sure we are living for Jesus rather than being chloroformed by the pleasures of this life. One of the most moving experiences of my Christian life was being present when George Beverly Shea, and that won't mean anything to some of you, those who are 
what the uh, one author calls old olds. That's where I am. Uh, uh, I've heard George Beverly Shea sing a Billy Graham Christine's many, many times. Never heard a voice like that. Beautiful. It would bring people all around me, including myself at times, into tears. And I was present in a crusade. There were thousands of people there uh, when George Beverly Shea sang for the first time in public after his wife of over 50 years had died. And by the way, he kept on singing until his death at 104 in 2013. That night he sang these words. This was his signature song. And I, I, I was going to find it and play it, but it's... I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lambs. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be a king of a vast domain and to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Fabulous. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Verse 21, 22, and 23. So then, Paul says, no more boasting about human leaders. All things, all God's blessings are yours, church. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Keller or Carl or Pilgrim or Chip, the world or life or death, or the present, meaning the present age, or the future. All are yours. And you, we, are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Gordon Fee writes, these five items, the world, life, death, the present, and the future, the world, life, death, the present, and the future, are the ultimate tyrannies of human existence to which people are in lifelong bondage as slaves. Unquote. We have life, eternal life. We no longer fear death. It's our entrance into a blessed eternity. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to live life in the present with victory. Our future is secure in Christ with reward awaiting our going or his return. Jesus' half-brother, James 2.5 Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Tom Wright is a fan of C.S. Lewis, and so am I. And he often writes things that I recognize coming almost directly from Lewis's pen. And here's an example. In short... The Corinthians were like people splashing about in a muddy pool when the ocean itself was right beside them, like people drinking dirty water from a polluted tap when the finest wine and sparkling mountain water were theirs to command. Imagine indulging in personality cults as though you were merely another bunch of squabbling sophists when the entire cosmos and all its truth, mystery, and wisdom were yours for the exploring. Temptations often promise more and give less. Sometimes, in fact, nothing at all. 
So what is your life going to count for? That's the question. I spoke uh, at a meeting here at the church yesterday morning, and this is one of the verses I spent some time on. Uh, I, I just love this verse. However, Acts 20, 24, the Apostle Paul, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's what Paul's saying. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. The Lord, who is Jesus, has given me. And what's the task? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. We are all investing our lives into something. What is that something? Is there anything temporal that is more important than my relationship with Jesus or that keeps me from exercising my gifts within the church, especially the church gathered? Tim Keller's son wrote about him. His wife was with him when he died and kissed him on the forehead. And his son quotes his dad's last words. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. And the son said, see you soon, Dad. May 19th, 2023, 72 years old. And it made me say, Lord, why am I still here? Really, like a great man like that who's got so much to offer. Well, I'm here as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all are. And we're all part of the puzzle. Jesus told several parables about his return. In one of them, he said these words, Matthew 25, 21. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. That's what we have to look forward to. So my first exhortation is to all of us here together who are Christians, let's show the world what a Christian is like. I don't really care what's going on in the world. Yes, I have the basic, I have enough knowledge. I'm not totally ignorant. But God's in charge of all that. Let's show the world what Christians are like. Especially, especially that's why I mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata, especially if we're in physical problems and stuff. The world couldn't, if you watch her, you can hardly, as Christians, I can hardly believe her joy, her joy. And I think, I wonder if I could ha handle something like that. And God says, well, you don't have to because you're not like her. That's what she's, that's her ministry. And so that's a ministry. Just simply being a kind person. Last night we heard a message on gentleness that was awesome, to be gentle people, to show the world that we're not out there to argue with them. We're there to tell them the truth about Jesus. And then all those other things will fall along the way. And so that's my exhortation to us. But maybe somebody here and you're not a Christian yet, or maybe you're online and you're not a Christian, please don't. I say this every week now, but I just feel compelled to say it. I don't know how many more weeks I'll be here. So I'm just saying, please don't take any chances. Please, today, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's another preacher who died uh, the same day Keller died, who huge, Harry, his last name's gone right out of my mind. He tremendous man of God, uh, 75 years old. He, very healthy, he wrote on his Facebook page two days ago, he wrote on his Facebook page a, a dedication to his 
his sister who died five years before. And the last words that he wrote at the bottom of that were, see you soon, sis. And two hours later, he was killed in a car accident. We don't know. I read a statistic today, and according to the statistic, you don't want to know it, but I got a lot of years ahead of me, if the statistic's right. <laughs> but the statistic isn't always right. <laughs> and I may not have any minutes ahead of me. And so don't wait. Just simply say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I need your help. Please fill me with your spirit. I want to be changed by you in Jesus' name. That's all you really need to do. And should you do that, uh, my number's always on the screen if you want to. It usually is. It's up there someplace. <laughs> Anyhow, there it is. You can call me if you want to know what the next step is or text me. Uh, we have some special Bibles if you're here and you want to investigate that more or you've done that. Uh, I'll be in the back there and those Bibles, I'll pile some up on the side. You can just grab one of them. They'll just be sitting there and uh, they will really help you uh, with the little thing about peace of God and what it has to say in the Bible. So let's pray. Father, I just pray that you will uh, <clears throat> even save some today. I know you will around the world. Someplace as Sunday rolls along, so many uh, uh, people that are part of the body of Christ are meeting everywhere, uh, here in our uh, city and county and state and then around the world. But, Father, also I want you to raise up the church. I pray for a true revival of your spirit that causes us to become so visible to the world in our kindness and gentleness and all of that and our love for one another that the world will want to know about the hope that is within us. And then all of these other issues, Father, that we can argue about endlessly will just fall away as more and more people follow you. So help us, Father. Uh, we would like you uh, to turn things around so that we can preach the gospel everywhere. In the meantime, Father, we're hoping that you'll come soon. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.